welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting in verse 9, hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to Him in prayer. Blessed Lord, You have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest the Scriptures as the Word of God. And that by patience and comfort of Your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which You have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said uh, before, uh, as we began Ecclesiastes and working our way through it, taking 18, uh, 18 uh, Sundays to, to do that. As I looked back at the book of Ecclesiastes, um, I have found certain themes. Uh, and I'm now backing up and, and, and thinking through what are some of those, those themes that we could look at. Those themes of, of living a meaningful life in Christ and I'm not prepared to give those to you. I'm diving even deeper into it, but enjoying it so much. And one of the themes I think that I am seeing recurring in my study of Ecclesiastes is just the joy of life, the joy of, of life. And as we come to this concluding passage in Ecclesiastes, we, we come not with an earthly, solemn attitude uh, Solomon has repeatedly shown us the vanity of life, but so also pointed us to the many blessings of God. And so today, as we look at it, uh, we might say that this is the end of the matter. This is the conclusion, the summation, which began back at the beginning. The very beginning of Ecclesiastes, you don't need to turn there, but you may recall that it began with these words. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And indeed, life is, as that Hebrew word is translated vanity, which means 
Life is short, but a breath, like a mist, like a vapor, and then it's gone. James reminds us of this very same thing, doesn't he? When he says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But what Solomon has taught us, and I hope that you have picked up on this as we've walked through this, what Solomon has taught us is that that truth does not rob life of its meaning. In fact, if you've been paying attention, Solomon teaches us it deepens it. We live a richer life. We live a deeper life. We lead a more meaningful life by virtue of knowing life is vanity. The answer is not found in life itself, however. That's how the world sees it. But rather, for whom do you live your life? The key The distinction is key, isn't it? Is meaning found in life itself the end? Or rather, is meaning found in someone? And indeed it is. Now at the beginning of this passage, you may notice, astute literary students that you are, you probably notice that Solomon switches back to third person just like he started. That's how he began Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting out. Now he switches back here in this last passage to third person, describing himself, and look with me, how does he describe himself? As wise. Besides being wise. In other words, that's a foregone conclusion. He is Wise. It's not a humble brag. Right? Solomon prayed for wisdom. He also prayed for knowledge. And God granted the request. Along with the unpetitioned riches, possessions, and honor. Unlike any king before him and any king after him. See also 2 Chronicles chapter 1. And the wisdom that God gave Solomon was not a secret. It's not like the kingdom of Israel was like, you know, the guy's a wise guy. Don't let it out. No, they saw it. In fact, Scripture says that Israel saw his wisdom and they, and I quote, stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Wow. But not just that. The world saw it too. In fact, in looking at Scripture, and for your continued study, I would point you to 2 Chronicles chapter 9. It in essence says that not only did the children of Israel see Solomon's wisdom, but his wisdom was known to the nations. The kingdoms throughout the world knew there is an extraordinarily wise king. In Israel, to Israel's benefit, what God had given to Solomon, he shared. He wasn't some ivory tower intellectual, but it was applied wisdom. He shared it in the kingdom. In fact, if you think back to the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, Solomon uses a chosen title for himself. 
That chosen title, the Hebrew word is kohelet, depending on how you pronounce it. It's translated here in the ESV as the preacher. It could also be translated as the proclaimer, loosely translated. It could be the teacher. But the general idea is, is that he calls himself kohelet, the preacher, the one who proclaims wisdom. The one who proclaims wisdom. And so willing to share this wisdom, he primarily taught And how did Solomon primarily teach? Well, he says it here. He primarily taught through Proverbs. What did he do? Look at me. Look with me at verse 9. He primarily taught through Proverbs, weighing and studying and arranging them with great care. To weigh is to consider carefully and practice right judgment in teaching the truth. And so Solomon weighed to study, or it could also be translated to search out, is to dig deeply, to seek diligently the truth, but also know how to rightly convey it. And to arrange, or, or the Hebrew here literally means to make straight is to organize, even systematize, to deliver the truth decently and in order through delightful, or that Hebrew word probably means less delightful and more fitting, appropriate, the perfect fit, or the French word, le mot joue. It is perfectly applied to be heard, to be understood, which we now see proves that Solomon was a Presbyterian. What Solomon delivered in Ecclesiastes, as well as, think with me, about the songs and the Proverbs, involved careful literary craft. You cannot be a student of the Proverbs and not get this, right? Just one proverb. You could think an entire week, entire month, maybe a whole year on just one of the Proverbs, just to think it through and to consider it deeply. And so he used this literary craft, but he used it as a gifted sage. And he was a sinner. Just like you. Just like me. And the argument that I have heard made against studying and applying the wisdom, and I've heard this quite candidly in faithful conservative churches for that matter, is that I don't need to spend my time studying Ecclesiastes primarily because of the failure, the moral failure of Solomon. He did not end life well, so the argument goes. And as I think about that, I think, but could not the same be said of Abraham the liar, Moses the murderer, David the adulterer, Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor, You see, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are are. And in His infinite wisdom, God chose to deliver His holy word through the means of sinful man. 
And though God uses the unique gifting and the unique style of each writer, the Apostle Paul, or rather the Apostle Peter, makes it very clear, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I think about it this way. By God's sovereign appointment, He delivers the means of grace through those saved by His sovereign grace. And so, our canon of Scripture is, as Solomon refers to it here, a collection. It is a collection of writings. It's a collection of writings by various sheep. But as Solomon says, there's only one shepherd. There's only one shepherd of the sheep. And by inspiration of God, the Word of God is the rule of faith and life. And so, what we have received in Ecclesiastes, all 12 chapters are not the antics of an angry agitator. They're not the mumblings of a mortal man. But they are the Word of God. And the Word of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, is perfect, reviving the soul. It is sure, making wise the simple. It is right, rejoicing the heart. It is pure, enlightening the eyes. It is clean, enduring forever, true and righteous altogether. And this is what I find so fascinating. And Solomon knows it and acknowledges it here. He knows that to be the truth. The preacher sought, he says, to find words of delight. And uprightly he wrote the words of truth. And through them, and through the word of truth, God works. Through Ecclesiastes and all the other books of the Bible, the Lord teaches The Lord reproves. The Lord corrects. The Lord trains us in righteousness. And He does it. And He uses this imagery here. Solomon does. He does this like with goads. Which most don't even know what that is. Because I didn't know what that is. But it's like a cattle prod. And I know what a cattle prod is. God uses the Word of God. The inspired Word of God. And I probably need a big cattle prod and a sharp one, right? The Word of God. Keeping me going where the Lord wants me to go. And Solomon says, that's how God uses His Word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Leading us, directing us as we are to go. Because you see, when you came to faith in Christ... You were not redeemed by God, and then God said, well, there it is. Now, you take it from here. Right? No, that's not how it is. In fact, we're not to figure out it on our own, but we are to go to God's special revelation. Incidentally, this is one of the reasons why. Advertisement coming. 
This is one of the reasons why we read through the Bible as a church. This is one of the reasons why I'm constantly encouraging be in the Word daily. It's one of the reasons why we need to teach our children and our grandchildren the Word of God. Did I mention that my third grandchild was born last night? Yes, he was. My first grandson, my third grandchild. Just thought I'd just drop that little bomb right there in the middle of the sermon. And um, so I will not be shaking hands after the service, but I'll be peeling out and heading out. Look for gravel flying where I parked. But it's one of the reasons why we need to teach our children and our grandchildren and and we need to teach ourselves the Word of God, to immerse ourselves in it, to be in the Word of God. You say, why? You know why? Because the Word of God is not dead and not some ancient tome to be ignored, but it is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword and it piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, Discerning the thoughts and intentions of my heart and your heart. Be in the word of God, brothers and sisters. And though our feelings are fickle, and though the circumstances of life are so uncertain, the word of God is firmly fixed. Solomon says, like driven nails, you can hang on it. It's set. It's firmly fixed. It's ready and it's secure. And I don't know about you, but I need something in my life that is stable. And the world, all the noise. It's one of the reasons why I read my Bible in the morning. Because this place is insane. And I want to start out my day to be in the Word of God Before I open up the door. (gasps) Go out into this crazy world. To be in the word of God. And this cannot be said. Solomon makes clear. Can't be said of other books. Now look. I am. What's the word when you're addicted to books? A bookophile? Uh, What's the word? A nerd. nerd. My mom said a nerd. Yeah. Thanks mom. (laughs) Got a glimpse into my childhood right there, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I like books, and I read a lot of books. The one part of the sermon that everybody's going to remember, don't remember that part. The Word of God. And books are a good thing. And God can use books, and God has used books, I'm sure, in your life. He's used books in, in my life to benefit my life. But they are subordinate That's why we call our confession of faith and catechisms our subordinate standards under the Word of God. Because everything will pass away. But what does Scripture say about the Word of God? Not sure if you remember this verse or not. It goes a little something like this. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the Word of our God will. And it will. Unlike anything else written, the Word of God will stand forever. Jesus said this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let that sink in. 
And he prayed this. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God prayed for you. I mean, Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for me. He prayed for our sanctification. And then he told us where to find it. Where to grow in grace. Grow in grace, not the word. And so let us believe the truth and be wary beyond it. And as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of God's Word, we're going to recognize themes in Scripture. And two of the themes that you'll see, if you're a student of the wisdom books of literature, right? So wisdom books of literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Songs, Song Song of Solomon as it's referred, Ecclesiastes. In these wisdom books, you're going to see themes pop up. And two of the themes that you'll see that pop up consistently are the fear of God and obeying God. The fear of God and obeying God. And Solomon brings both of them together almost as a summation of wisdom literature right here in verse 13. Look with me. Fear God and keep His commandments. Stop. In fact... He argues that this is the end of the matter. The purpose for which he has preached. The whole duty of man. But what does this mean? What does it mean, fear God and keep His commandments? Is Solomon here advocating salvation by works? A legalistic admonition for law-keeping to be disregarded by those redeemed from the curse of the law? As a Christian, have you wasted 18 Sundays of your life listening to sermons on Ecclesiastes? I think we need to back up. We need to understand beginning with the last verse, because the last verse is going to help us understand what the preceding verse means. In verse 14, Solomon writes, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, this is not the first time, as you know, this is not the first time that Solomon has reminded us of this imminent certainty. But he states it last, the last verse of the book, I might add, that it may be first on our minds. And this is not just Old Testament writing, right? The Apostle Paul puts it very clearly, although he adds who the judge will be. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. So, the question is not whether you will or whether you won't stand before God to be judged, but the question is what will be the outcome? What will be the outcome? Second, as judgment day is certain, Solomon says, now go back to the preceding verse, fear God and keep His commandments. And if this is the end of the matter of the entire book, we'd better take the imperative seriously rather than dismiss it, as many do. There are some that get to the end of Ecclesiastes and they go, ah, that's just legalism. That's just works. Ah, but you know, there was some good stuff in there about 
food and drink. No, that's not it at all. This is the end of the matter, Solomon says. But the problem is, is that oftentimes the word fear is misunderstood. It's confused with terror. And often classified as an emotion. In contradiction to the love of God. Oh, you know, the Old Testament was fear God. The New Testament is love God. Uh, no, no, the, it's like hand and glove, actually. And keeping God's commandments are oftentimes seen negatively. It's like, well, you know, those commandments, they're an infringement upon my Christian liberty. <laughs> well, when we look back at, and I'm just going to use the example of Abraham, when we look back at the life of Abraham, we actually see that is a poor understanding of Scripture. Because when we look at him, we see exactly what Solomon means by fear God and keep his commandments. So I want you to briefly think back with me about Abraham. Think back. Who was Abraham? Who was he? He was a man called, personally called by God. He was a man promised to be blessed and through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. He was a man with whom God made a covenant and also God promised him an heir. He was a man who, by God's grace, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was a man called a friend of God. He was a man who was faithful to obey God. And he was so faithful to obey God that it was even to the point of a willingness to sacrifice his only son upon an altar. And he was the man to whom God said this, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I now know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so Abraham was a man who feared God, and sought to obey him precisely as Solomon describes it. He who was justified by faith, righteous before God in his faith, feared God, kept his commandments. And this means that what Solomon advocates is exactly what we need. What Solomon advocates shouldn't be dismissed as irrelevant because it's everything that we need. Solomon is no more advocating works-based religion than the Apostle Paul, who said this, don't miss it, Romans chapter 4, hear it clearly, for what does Scripture say, Paul says. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then Paul goes on, because this means something very, very important to us. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Pause there for just a second. Bring this into perspective. What, we have been, what Paul has done is he said, I'm going to tell you about Abraham. Don't dismiss him as Old Testament. 
Don't dismiss Ecclesiastes. Oh, that's just Old Testament. Don't do that. Because the Apostle Paul doesn't. He says, I'm telling you about Abraham. And by the way, what I'm telling you about him isn't for you. He says this. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but ours also. It would be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so for God to say to Abraham, I know that you fear me. I know that you fear God. And to acknowledge His obedience is equivalent to New Testament faith and living out that faith in obedience to Christ's commands. In other words, don't dismiss what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes because he says exactly what Paul says. He says exactly what Peter says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Live unto Him as befitting a Christian or as Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This means that for all of the Old Testament saints who looked in faith to what was fulfilled in Christ, like Abraham, and all the New Testament saints who looked back to what was fulfilled in Christ, that would be us, on Judgment Day, we will not be judged by our enemy but by our beloved Savior. Not for works that save, but faith that shows itself evident in Christ. In Christ alone. As the writer of Hebrews put it, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. (laughs) That's us. We're, We're eagerly waiting for Him. And we're not eagerly waiting coward in terror. In fact, Jesus says we're waiting for Him with anticipation. Like a bride waiting for her groom. Trusting, loving, and obeying Him as our beloved. For He is. And so this is the the end of the matter. The right response to everything Solomon has written Of which he adds, the whole duty of man. But this translated phrase, the whole duty of man, can be misleading. And when we hear that, the whole duty, what word do we tend to focus on? Duty, right? And we can think of it like requirement, as if Solomon is saying, this is the requirement from God. Hear it. Don't miss it. But that's not the best translation. A better translation is is that this is the all of man. This is the all of man. Benjamin Shaw explains the idea is that this is what makes man whole. 
This is what fulfills man. So I'll take you all the way back to the very first sermon and explain it this way. If our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then life lived by faith in obedience to Christ's commands gives meaning to life and God gets the glory. That's the Christian life. That is a beautiful thing. If our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then a life lived by faith in obedience to Christ's commands gives my life meaning. It gives your life meaning. And guess who gets all the glory? God. In fact, I argue this informs every aspect of your life. There is not one part of your life that this does not inform. If I was made in the image of God, Good news. Yet fallen in sin. Bad, really, really bad news. If I am separated in my sin from a loving Creator and a holy God, and if my only hope to be reconciled with God is me and my works, then I'm without hope and living life is for nothing but God. I think it was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, that said uh, those two words sum up the gospel. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And if you desire then to live a meaningful life, and I do, and I think you do too, if you desire to live a meaningful life, let this truth be held in your heart and let it flow out in your life. Let it just be like streams rolling off of you. That when someone says, do you know so-and-so? Their life shines forth. I am saved by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And He has redeemed me to live out this life in obedience to Him. This is the all. Of man. Because you know why? Because Christ is our all. Christ is our all. The end of the matter? Yeah, it is. That's it. That's the end. Because Christ is our all. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. 
To Him be glory forever. Amen. Our God in heaven, oh, how we thank You for Your Word. It is perfect indeed. And it does its work through the Holy Spirit. And we thank You for the privilege of working through this rather difficult book in Your canon of Scripture. We thank You for it. And pray that it be a blessing upon our lives. We pray that you would use your word to encourage us and teach and reprove. Direct us as you have saw fit. We pray that our lives would shine forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we do indeed fear you and obey your commandments. We pray that you would be glorified through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.